Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. I remember the day clearly. It's um, etched and burned in my memory. August 15th, 1986. I had all four wisdom teeth cut out that day. And um, came home after having them surgically removed and was, you know, chipmunk face, but but having pain medication to, to try and deal with some of that. My wife was a little over nine months pregnant, and Kenzie was not due for another few weeks. And this was the, as I recollect, my recollection could be wrong, often is, as I recollect, this was the first of what would, would have been many nights on the rollaway bed. Because we reached the point to where there was no room in the bed for me with my nine-month pregnant wife. She, she didn't want anybody touching her at that point. Uh, that was just, if you've experienced that, you know exactly what that's like. Um, but I just, I needed to sleep somewhere else so that she could sleep. And, and so the rollaway bed came out and the rollaway bed was, as most rollaway beds are, it folds out. It's got a, about a two and a half inch thick mattress, cotton mattress on top of it and springs and a couple of bars in the middle. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm. There, trying to trying to go to sleep and trying to get comfortable on these bars, trying to turn and figure out a way that I can lay that's not in pain. And I don't recall ever going to sleep because I recall her waking me up or, or alerting me just a couple of hours later that her water had broken and it's time to go to the hospital. So I get up, fold the rollaway bed up, we grab the bags, we get the things and we head to the hospital and and this whole 24, 48-hour period, you need to understand, is a blur to me because I'm, I'm on pain medication. I'm still in some pain, but I'm, I'm on some pain medication, and I'm, and I'm, um, I'm not having any sleep in a while. Uh, the nights previous to that, I didn't sleep very well either, if you, as you can imagine, with a pregnant wife. She didn't either. I, I'm not, I don't want to point the finger at her. She, she didn't sleep very well with me either, probably, but... We were lacking sleep. We were, you know, all four wisdom teeth out. <clears throat> and at this point, I'm over in the corner of the birthing room, sitting over in the corner in one of these couches that's supposed to make a, or seats, this chair is supposed to make a bed. doesn't make a very good bed. In fact, it's not a very good chair, if you want the tr- truth about it. Um, but I'm sitting over in the corner and, and trying to get some comfort, and, and, and the doctor, you know, comes in, the delivery process has started. Um, you know, he... Mr. Parker, you want to come around? No, nah, I've seen it before. It's, it's, it's okay. I'll, I'll just, just, you know, tell me when something exciting happens. And I'm at the, I'm at the point here where I just really don't care because I'm, I'm, I'm nearing, I'm not quite there, but I'm nearing the end of me. And that's where this story is going. And so he, um, uh, Kenzie's early. She's, she, she comes out and she's, she's birthed and we're all rah, 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 or they're rah, 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 and I'm, I'm over in the I think I'm up at this point as best I remember. I'm trying to give it a rah-rah the best I can. And they clean her up, and, and she's, she's a preemie, and they, they hand her to me, and, and I've got her here. Her head is between these two fingers, and her little tail end is on the heel of my hand. I mean, that's how small she was. 
And I'm saying, you know, how can anything this small live, for one thing? And so they, they clean her up and hand her to me, and I'm holding her, and, and you know, she's ooing and cooing and all those kinds of things. We're probably crying, and I'm oblivious to it. But anyway, the, the, you, could have, you could have driven a Mack truck into that delivery room, uh, or birthing room, birthing suite now they call it. Um, into the birthing suite, you could have driven a Mack truck into that, into that room at that point, that night, at, at about any time, and I could have cared less. It would have been just, just one other thing to add to the drama. I could still feel the, the pain in my back from the, the, from the bars and the rollaway bed, no sleep. Uh, I'm angry that my baby's coming early because we planned this wisdom teeth out thing so that I could be over all of this by the time the baby comes. So I'm mad at God, and I'm mad at my, myself, and I'm mad at my wife, and I'm mad at the world, and I'm mad at the doctor, and I'm mad at all. And so it just isn't a very good day. Why? Because I am physically and, and pretty well emotionally at the end of me. <laughs> and the end of that story is a great thing happens because we have a, we have a new baby girl into the world. And, um, and the blessing of that is we're, we're still reaping, I, I think. The jury's still out on that, but we're still reaping the blessings of that, um, of that joyous delivery. And, and the, I guess the end of the story there is, is what I want you to see is that good things happen oftentimes when we get to the end of ourselves. Now, I wouldn't have chosen that end. Uh, I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't have chosen that night for it or anything like that. But I was pretty much at the end of myself. I had nothing really to do. That when we, you know, I, we weren't doing Lamas or anything like that. I wasn't, you know, doing the, the breathing instructions or any, all, any of that kind of thing. So I, I played no major role in that at that time. Um, so I was, you know, I was kind of there along for the ride. And the doctor was trying to engage me, and I was just, you know, semi-engaged. Um, as I say, because I was at the end of me, there's a lesson in all of that, and we find that here in the First Corinthians, First Chapter, First Corinthians, and that's this. That when we get to the end of ourselves, spiritually speaking, and probably even emotionally and physically, in some cases, like I was in that story, um, good things start to happen. Until we get to the end of ourselves, though, spiritually, emotionally, and in some cases physically, we hold out on him. And because we hold out on him, we experience less of him than is available to us as believers. Most of the folks who are content with cultural Christianity, and that's where, we're, that's where we are in this in this eight-week series of looking at cultural Christianity and looking at the Scripture and a lot of that and how many of the principles around the relationship with Jesus, with this person of Jesus, are totally in conflict with what you and I know today as cultural Christianity. This idea of, of being at the end of ourself and that being a place where God takes over is a great lesson for you and I because we need to learn, if we, if, and I hope this is the takeaway out of this, this message tonight. If it's not, I've, I've done a bad job and the Scripture's not become very clear. But we need to learn to pursue that and not just accept it. We need to learn to pursue the end of ourselves and not just see it as a very last resort. Oftentimes we see it as a very last resort. We're at the end of us because we have nothing else to add. We have nothing, nothing else to figure out. We've, we've done all, said all, been all. Still, it's not all that. And then we find out, Maybe God has more, and he does. But how much better would it be for you and I if we got to that place willingly instead of reluctantly? You can talk to any addict, whether it's alcohol or pills or anything else, and nothing favorable long-term happens until they, they get to the end of themselves, until they get to the end of their addiction, the end of their ability to deal with whatever it is, whether it's alcohol or drugs or pornography or, or whatever. You fill in the blank. Any addictive behavior never stops until I get to the end of me, to the end of my ability to do something about it. That's a productive place. 
for an addict. It's a productive place for most believers. And I want you to see that tonight. I don't, I don't want you to see the end of me as a negative. I want you to see that as a positive, and hopefully we can start to intentionally move in that direction in areas of our life, in our marriage. We're, it's the end of us, and, and we're, we're, not, we're not manipulating this. We're trying to control this relationship anymore, vocationally. Well, I'm not trying to manipulate this and control it to my favor anymore. R- relationally, spiritually, to where we start to pursue things that yield control. We start to pursue, pursue things that we no longer can control or have any, any strings to pull to make things happen. The end of ourselves is a productive place. I want you to see that in the Scripture. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at the, the last few verses of chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2 together. Picking up in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before Him. It's because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, five things I want us to see from this text. First of all, the end of me is the beginning of His wisdom. Look in the first part of verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. What is he saying? On our wisest day, On his wisest day, the wisest human on his wisest day is a fool compared to to, to our Lord on his dumbest day. He's saying the wisdom of God, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. It's child's play to him. The wisest of the wise is child's play to him. Well, why do we still question this? Why do we still ask and act and live as though we can somehow attain some some sense of godly wisdom. Well, we can to, to the extent that Christ is in us and He gives us that wisdom. But to the extent that we can do that on our own, the serpent is still rampant. You see, He didn't stop in the garden. He didn't stop saying to people in the garden, you know what? You should really partake of that tree because in doing so, God knows that if you share in the tree, the fruit of the tree, you'll know what He knows. You'll be as wise as He is. He's still telling us that same story today. If you'll just walk in this road, if you'll just build a relationship with her or with him, if you'll just take this job, if you'll just buy this house, if you'll just drive this car, if you'll just send your kids to this school, he's telling us over and over and over again that we are wiser than God. In simple and seductive ways, he's still about that. He didn't stop in the garden. Um, in fact, turn back, turn back if you will, uh, probably a few pages back to Romans chapter 9. This illustrates this probably uh, a little more clearly. Let's look at verses 20. Uh, 20 and 21 of Romans chapter 9. 
Verse 20 says, but who are you? A mere human being to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for the disposal of refuse? In essence, essence, how dare we think our plans are better than his? How dare we as the created, as the molded, as as the clay, tell the potter, I know more than you know. I'm a better piece of clay than you think you formed. I'm a little smarter than, you th- than I look. What he's saying here is that his wisdom in every case, regardless of education, regardless of background, regardless of experience, regardless of age, his wisdom is much wiser than us on our wisest day. The wisdom for us would be to get to the end of ourselves and how we seek to, to pursue him, how we seek to think we know more than him and act like that. The second thing is this. The end of me is the beginning of his strength. Look at the latter part of verse 25. Not only did we look at this this wisdom, but he says the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, sadly, the way we most often learn this is through hardship. The way we most often learn that the weakness of God is stronger than our strength is through hardship. Um, Probably the most vivid example of this, and there are many, But the most vivid example of this that all of us can identify with are natural disasters. Earthquakes, um, famines, drought, uh, hurricanes. Is it it just me or does it seem like those things are becoming more prevalent? Maybe the fact that it's a 24-hour news cycle. Maybe they were that way. I don't know. But it seems to me that those things are becoming more prevalent. It seems to me that those things are not only becoming more prevalent, but becoming more devastating in their strength and in the fact that they can, almost in the form of Haiti, wipe out an entire country. Or in, in, the, in the form of the tsunami, wipe out thousands and thousands of people. Boom, in just one strike of nature. Well, is God mad at us? Is, he, is that God's judgment? Is he trying to get back at us? Is that, is that a display of his strength? Is he trying to show us, here's who I am and here's what you're not, and you don't have the capability to do much about that? Um, I think it's about this, and and probably more. But I think it's about this. When we refuse to hear him, we will see him. When we refuse to hear him, we will see him. He's given us his message, and he says, here's who I am. Here's how I work. Here's the things I'm capable of. Here's my strength, my wisdom. When we refuse to hear that and act on what we hear, he'll show up. He'll show us himself. Now, are those things his judgment? I'm going to let you answer that question, but here's two things, two observations about whether natural disasters or those kinds of things. That that kind of display of God's strength is his judgment or not. First of all, whether he caused it or allowed it, totally immaterial, he could stop it. God's got the power to stop any any disaster, any form of nature that he wants to stop. Why? (laughs) He caused it. He put the earth on its axis. He caused the earth to rotate once every 24 hours. He he caused the rotation to take 365 days around the sun. He caused that axis to be in place. He caused the seasons to be in place. He can do anything he wants to with them. He causes the wind to blow. He can stop it anytime he wants to stop it. God can stop anything from happening he wants to happen. The second observation, though, is this. The Scripture tells us that the last days, the generation who are accompanying his coming, those kinds of things will start to occur more rapidly and more feverishly, uh, with greater intensity. 
Uh, the scripture teaches us that in the latter days, in the generations that are getting close to accompanying his return, those kinds of things will occur. Are you and I that generation? Is he showing up to display his strength so that those around us within our sphere of influence can have the opportunity to say, you know, here's what God may be saying or doing with that. He's real, you know. He's got the power to wipe us out at any one swipe of his hand. He's got the power to devastate us by nature if he wants to. He's real, you know. You know why? He created all of this. Let's go back. Is he doing that so that you and I have the opportunity to say that to our friends and that to our folks within our sphere of influence? Or is, are we just as wild as they are? Are we as believers just as taken aback by those kinds of things? And do they take us by as much surprise as they do lost folks? Are we as wild as they are? Or are we in expectation of God's strength? Do we expect him to show up when we don't listen to him as we should? Thirdly. The end of me is not only the beginning of his wisdom and the beginning of his strength, it's the beginning of his values. Look at verse 27, 28. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. What he's saying in these verses is God takes our value system and totally tips it 180. The things we value, he don't value and the things oftentimes we, we give little value to, he elevates to a great degree. He, he uses some of the terminology in these verses. He takes the foolish. What does he mean by that? The uneducated. He takes the weak. What does he mean by that? Those with no resources. He talks, takes the lowly. What does he mean by that? Those who are societally insignificant. He takes the despised. What does he mean by that? Those who are undesirable. Those who you and I wouldn't want to hang out with. Those that are not. He takes the invisible things. The things that are not. The things we can't see. He takes the... All those foolish, weak, lowly, and despised things and makes something out of that. That's not our value system, is it? In fact, that's not our value system for the kingdom. The value system he uses, he took basically 12 misfits, lowly people, fishermen, thieves, uh, societal outcasts. Took 12 guys like that, changed the world. You and I are sitting here because of those 12 guys. We wouldn't have chosen any of them. In fact, if, we're going, if we were trying to build Cross Point on a really solid foundation, most people in the world would say to us, you know, you need to have some good business people, good business minds in your church. You need to have some good prayer warriors, people that are real seasoned in their faith. And you need to have some people that have, have some means and some influence. And you need to have some people that have some real knowledge spiritually. They've led a lot of people to Christ. And we don't look like that as a church, do we? You know what? A lot of churches don't look like that. A lot of churches don't have the things that this world says they need yet. God is using them in spite of the things they don't have, isn't he? He takes our value system and totally flips it 180. And the things that we, we think are important, the things we think should have value, he says, no, I don't need that. In fact, my value system is totally the opposite of that. I want to take the despised things. I want to take the people that nobody wants to hang out with, and I want to use them. I want to take the people that are uneducated, the people that, that really don't have it all together. In fact, when they start to talk, you kind of wince at some of the things that come out of their mouth sometimes because they're a little bit abrupt and they're a little bit crude. And I want to take those kinds of people. I want to use them. That's what Peter sounded like. I want to use those kinds of people. I want to use the people in the situations in life that you wouldn't use. You wouldn't build a kingdom on, certainly. And I, I fear that today, in, as cultural Christianity is rampant, we look for all the wrong things. We look for neatness. We look for folks who have it all together. We look for folks who who are, who are financially well off and have a good education. Their family's doing great and, and life is clicking for them. 
And God is seeking out over and over people who aren't working very well. People whose lives are kind of in shambles. People who don't have it all together. And he says, I want to use these people. Those are the folks I really want to carry the message. Why? Because they're a greater story of redemption. I don't want to take people who don't need me and convince them that they do. I'd rather take people who need me and let them tell the story of what I've done for them. How much powerful is the story? More powerful. Well, his value system is not like ours. Fourthly, though, not only is the enemy uh, the beginning of wisdom, strength, and values, it's the beginning of his plan. The beginning of his plan. Look at verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It's because of him. Because of him. He says that we have a relationship with Jesus. His plan, he's saying here, brought Jesus to us, not the other way around. Now, lest you think God in sending Jesus to us was plan B. He planned this before creation. In fact, we can go back to Genesis chapter 3 and let, or Genesis chapter 2, let us, the three of us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us create man in our image. He was present thereby saying the plan of God was the plan of Jesus from the very beginning, and the plan of Jesus to come in the New Testament and reveal himself as Messiah was orchestrated before creation began. So if you have this thought in your mind that God came to the Jews in the Old Testament and they just messed it up, and they just didn't see him, they didn't recognize him, they, they threw him off, they disregarded him. And so he says, okay, I'm going to start all over and let me send Jesus, and he'll, he'll try and reclaim the Jews and then open up the message of the Gentiles. That's not what he, was, what he was about at all. In fact, the entirety of the Old Testament is about one thing. It's about readying people's minds and hearts for Messiah to come. It's about planting a seed of Christ-likeness in what was going on to where Messiah would be recognized by the Jew and would be accepted by the Gentile. The entirety of the Old Testament was all preparatory to Jesus coming, to Messiah saying, now the world is ready for me, and the Father saying it's ready for my son. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you a parallel verse, or a couple of parallel verses here that um, deal with this very thing in probably as clear, if not a more clear way. Um, this idea of, of God's plan being greater than ours and God's plan seeing further than ours. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And also you, that's you and I, Gentiles, or included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This plan that God had to come to us, not for us to come to him, his plan to come to us is still intact. And in fact, it's still working. Most of us who are redeemed think that keeping that redemption, keeping that work of Christ, keeping his pleasing will, keeping his blessing in my life, if we want to look at it that way, keeping God's blessing in my life has everything to do with what I do. It has everything to do with my service to him. The more I serve him, the more I give, the more I love, the more I, I'm in greater standing with him, and consequently I receive greater blessing from him. And he says here, that's not true. Because my plan was not for you to work your way to me. My plan was not for you to come to me at all. My plan is to come to you. 
My plan is to send Messiah to you. And in fact, even after you, even after you know Messiah, he's saying here in Ephesians, my plan was to put the Spirit in you to keep drawing you back to me. Not the other way around. To keep drawing you back. My, my pursuit of you, it looks like the cross and its epitome, but not only does it end, it doesn't end at the cross, my pursuit of you is my giving you the indwelling Holy Spirit to say, I'm coming after you. Who do you think, it, who do you think warns us when we're in situations we don't need to be in? Who do you think speaks truth to us when we're in situations of hurt or harm or pain? Who do you think reminds us of God's Word when we're in need of just something to make sense of life? Where does that come from? It comes from His Spirit. Where do you think we get these... Hey, you don't need to be here. You don't need to be in this conversation at all. In fact, you need to be over there. Where do you think those kinds of situations come from? They come from His Spirit. What is that? It's continuing to pursue us. The Spirit pursues us in the place of the Father, sending the Son to do that. You see, this idea of our getting back in right relationship with Him is all about Him and not about us. It's not about our works. It's not about our pursuits. It's not about how smart we are. It's not about our values. It's not about our strength. It's about our weakness. It's not about our strength. It's about our inability to be wise, not about our wisdom. He's coming after us. Fifthly, the end of me is the beginning of his power. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Where is it found? It's found in the Spirit. The Spirit's power, he says in that verse. In Ephesians 6, 17 he says to arm yourself, Ephesians 6 is, is, is talking about the armor of God, and one of the things we're to arm ourselves with in Ephesians 6 is the sword of the Spirit. I shared with you several weeks ago when we were, or several months ago when we were in the book of Romans, actually, how this correlation of word and spirit are all throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament. How God's Spirit always correlates with His Word, and His Word points to the Spirit, the Spirit points to the Word, the Spirit reveals the Word, and revert, the Word reveals the Spirit. How those two things work together. He says here that that in you is the source of power. So where do we glean that? Where does that come from? It comes from our understanding of God's Word. Where does our power come from? It comes from getting our nose in the pages of this book and saying, Spirit, help me see it. Help me understand it. I need to get it. I don't not only need to get it, I need to live it and chew on it and eat on it a little bit. I need to get it and I know you want to help me see it. Help me see it. You see, if we're playing on our own smarts, or the smarts of our small group leader, or the smarts of our pastor, to see or hear something from God, we're in deep, deep trouble. We need to be leaning on God's Spirit for those things. He needs to be the one teaching us and guiding us where we need to go, what we need to, what we need to do. Now, here's a word of caution, I think, that he, that he says here, in, that, that's illustrated here in verses 4 and 5, and that's this. The Spirit's power and God's power rest not on human wisdom, but on God's power. If you and I try and catch ourselves... Or catch ourselves often, and, and if we look, we will. Catch ourselves at trying to manage God. What do I mean by that? Trying to control when and where and how he speaks in the sense that if it works out for it's something we're praying about or if it's convenient for us or it's a, if it's a timely prayer, if it's a timely work of God, come on in, God. Help me with this. But if it's a situation where I think I've got this, whether it's whatever, it may be something about your job, something about your marriage, something about your parenting skills. You may think you're all that and, and then some. You don't need his help. What he's reminding you of is you're nothing without his help. He says, he's implying in these verses that, that 
if we try and manage and contain the power of God, we can probably, and here's, here's been some experience in my life, and you, many of you can probably attest to this. The more you try and manage and contain the power of God in your life and keep it contained to where you can grab it, it's in a box, and you can grab it as needed. You, here, I need it today, or I don't. You and I want to contain and manage and, and, and keep his power in that kind of box. We not only might, we will endure suffering. We will endure hardship. Why? For him to teach us that when we get to the end of ourselves, the end of our power, the end of our strength, we find out he's all we needed. He's all we ever needed. In fact, he's all we ever had. Why is that such a hard lesson for us to learn? Why is it so hard? And we looked at this as well in in Hebrews and in Ephesians both. Why Why is it so hard for us to learn that suffering is God's tool to pull us back to himself? He's not out to get us. He loves us. He died for us. It's a tool for us to acknowledge I'm powerless. In fact, I'm at the end of me in this situation, whether the suffering is physical. And, and, and we're, we're physically at a place with cancer or we're, or we're at a place where, where, the, where the, we can do nothing about our situation. Nothing. Zero. Or whether, our, whether the end of us is, is relational, whether our marriage is this close to divorce. This close to somebody walking out. This, one more conversation from. Or whether our, whether our suffering is, is, is vocational. Whether we've lost a job. And we're, we're with no income. And we're wondering, do I need to sell the house? Are we, are we that close? Or, what are we? or whether our suffering is emotional. Whether our suffering is, is, is mental. Or regardless of where it is, he always has a divine purpose in that to, to reveal to us and to show to us, I am the power in your life. Not just part of it. I'm all of it. And you can do nothing apart from me. I am God's power in you. I am the power of the Spirit through the Word in you. And the quicker you see that, the quicker you get to the end of yourself, the quicker you'll see, I'm all you've got. Consequently, I'm really all you need. When you get to, the, to where your life is reprioritized in the sense of, I don't care if I lose everything else. In fact, I've lost that and this and the other thing and my pride and I've lost all of that. And then I get to the end of that and I see he's still there. (laughs) He didn't go anywhere. And he's not. And his power is the power that's sustaining me through all this mess, through all this hurt, this trial, and this hardship. Well, whether whether you look at hardship as a means to an end, and I hope you do, whether you look at it as God mad at you, which he isn't, I hope it has this end result. I hope it helps us to see it's his power that sustains me through this. And in fact, if there's any hope of deliverance on the other side of it, it's his power that delivers me from it. Now, Tim, this is great. Uh, these, these, you know, these five things here are great, and they, they reveal what the, the beginning of God at the end of me. What's all this point to? A couple of verses I want to point out here as we close up and then, and then finish up. Look in verse 22 of chapter 1 and verse 2 of chapter 2. Verse 22 says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a, strum, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Look in verse 2 of chapter 2. For I'm, Paul speaking, I'm resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and his, him crucified. Paul was a very learned man. He was extremely educated. And yet he says here, I'm determined to know nothing. In essence, everything I've learned is nothing, is dung compared to knowing him. 
compared to him and his crucifixion and what his crucifixion has done to change me, what it can do to change you. That's where the power is. It's not in what I know. It's in what he has done. Now, what's he saying here? That we need to crucify our own wisdom. We need to crucify our own strength, our own values, our own plans, our own power. We need to nail those to a cross. It's in that daily death, that daily crucifixion of those things that we see the power of God come alive. Why? Because of this. And we'll close with this. Because of this, God does not work with us. He doesn't work with us. He works in spite of us. He works oftentimes at the end of us. When we get to the end of ourselves, that's where he takes over. He's never promised all throughout this word to work with us. Take a little bit of us, a little bit of him. Let's mix it all together and we'll, we'll come up with a winnable formula for you. Not how he works. You know what he demands of us? We lay everything at him. We lay everything, we give everything to him and say, it's all you. And know me. Because this idea of working with us, it kind of implies, and, and I'm a Henry Blackaby fan, don't, don't get me wrong, but I disagree with what Henry said in, in the sense in Master Life where he says that God is asking us to join him. I don't think God's asking us to join him at all. The, the, the implication of God asking us to join him is that somehow we can bring some of our stuff with us. And God don't want our stuff. In fact, he wants you to leave stuff behind. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, how being a follower of his is something drastically different than what most of us know, what most of us live. He's asking us not to join him, but to follow him. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, this idea of following him looks like total abandonment. I mean, you, we, we saw what he told these guys. Leave this behind. I want to go bury my dead. Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Leave your livelihood behind. In fact, leave the biggest catch you've ever made in your life. A year's worth of wages are laying there in the nets on the side. Leave all that behind. Come follow me. That's what they did. They abandoned their life, abandoned their livelihood, abandoned their vocation, abandoned their very families and followed him. See, this idea of joining him and this idea of him working with us some way is total bunk. I'm going to tell you, it's straight out of hell. You know the truth about it. And the enemy uses it for us believers every day. A little bit of you. A little more of God, it'll all work out. It's totally out of hell. It smells like smoke. You know what he says? None of you, all of me. That's what I demand. Abandonment. I'm not, I don't want to work with you. I want to work in place of you. I want to work in spite of you. In spite of your inability to do anything about your circumstances, I want to show you how I can. In spite of your inability to do anything about your suffering, I want to show you the way out. In spite of your inability to change your circumstances, I want to show you how I can. I am what it's all about, not you. Zero of you, 100% of me. Doesn't sound like cultural Christianity, does it? Doesn't sound like where most of us live, does it? Because we're, we're smart, educated people. We ought to be able to figure this thing out. I mean, shouldn't we? A little bit of God, a little bit of this. It'll all work together. You say, that don't look like me. That's not what I want. Where you need is to get to the end of yourselves to realize the beginning of me. And the beginning of me is bigger than you've ever dreamed. In fact, it's bigger than anything you can ever imagine. On your wisest day, you're foolish before me. On your strongest day, you're totally weak before me. He says, I've got something bigger and better than you can ever imagine. You've never even dreamed of it. If you'll just get your hands out of it, get your life out of the way so it can work, so I can work. I don't know if it looks like where you live or not. 
Well, it's not where I live often enough. This, this, this thing of my dying to my own will and what I want and what I see to be wise and true, it's hard for me too. But he demands that of us. He demands this death of saying, the end of me is where the beginning of God takes over. That's where he starts to show up and where I see him in huge ways. The end of me meant a beautiful daughter coming into my life and the end of me spiritually can mean a, a bigger God than I've ever imagined. And he can mean that for you too. And he wants to. He, he, in fact, he's got the spirit in us saying, let go of that, will you? Will you let me have that? Will you quit worrying about that? I've got that. I've got all of this. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Crosspoint Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.